Hello. Hey. Welcome to Rosé and DNA, a brand new podcast about women who are making waves in science, healthcare, and tech. I'm Deanna. And I'm Renee. And we're two professionals working in the field of genetics. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Eltavis Ewing. Dr. Ewing received her bachelor's degree in biology from Rhodes College in Tennessee. She then went on to pursue a PhD in human genetics and genetic counseling from Howard University. After that, she pursued a postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins, and after spending some time working as a clinical cancer genetic counselor, she accepted a position as a medical science liaison at the medical tech company 23andMe. Recently, Dr. Ewing accepted a position as a senior science leader in global health equity strategy at Genentech Roche. In recent years, the National Minority Forum named her on their list of 40 under 40 leaders in minority health, and she's been featured in NPR and the In Those Genes podcast as an expert in advocating for eliminating health disparities. So... We are just so thankful that you have decided to join us today for our podcast. Um, We've had you on our mind for quite a bit in terms of a potential guest. Um, And I think a big reason for that is just as a genetic counselor, you've kind of diverged from the traditional path in a few ways. I think one of them being your decision to go on to pursue a PhD and then Going from there, then becoming a medical science liaison at 23andMe, a company that, of course, we all know has gained a lot of traction in the public sphere, but also a lot of commentary from medical genetics providers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know that was an interesting thing that we we are very curious about. Um, and then finally, you know, come to today with your with your role at Genentech as a global health equity strategist and you know scientist, really leading the charge on on equity measures in, in science and in research. So I think, you know, you've challenged kind of the status quo of what it means to be a genetic counselor in a lot of ways, which really excited us. Um, but you've also just in general been a kind of a trailblazer as a woman in science, as a black woman in science. And these are all, you know, really important things that we want to kind of tackle today and, and learn, a, learn a lot more about kind of your experience throughout all of those parts of you and your career. Thank you. I'm definitely looking forward to sharing it all. Hopefully I don't bore you <laughs> along the way. Um, but yes, I, I'm a firm believer in hopefully by sharing my story, it may uplift or even motivate others to know that, you know, you don't have to follow the same path or same track um, as someone else in our profession or our field in order to truly make a difference and to truly feel as though you're living in purpose. Well, we're already off to a good start. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess before we get started, um, we can start with maybe our wine review. Um, we can just talk a little bit more about the wine that we're planning to drink today. Um, it doesn't have to be anything formal, but um, yeah, we're curious what, what you're having to drink today. Yes. So I will admit I have cran apple juice in my glass right now because it is 10, 12 a.m. <laughs> and I have about eight more meetings after after our podcast today. Um, however, I have a bottle of Roscato sparkling red wine, sparkling sweet red that I plan to crack open a little later. Um, my birthday was this past Saturday. Oh, um, so birthday. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, so a really kind friend gifted this bottle to me. She knows that I love 
um, sweet red. So I plan to crack this open a little later when it's time to relax and all the meetings are over. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess we could we can share what we're having. Um, we're a few hours uh, further in our day, so <laughs> it's socially acceptable to have a glass of wine. Um, <laughs> Yeah, usually I stay on brand and go with a rosé, um, but today I decided to go completely off base and try a Riesling. Um, it's actually a Riesling from Luxembourg, so very random. Um, but yeah, I've had wine from this vineyard before, um, and I just wanted to try a different a different kind. So I'll, I'll let you know how it is a little bit later in the segment. <laughs> I love Rieslings. They're definitely my favorite. <laughs> and yeah, I'm drinking um, a Gerard Bertrand um, rosé. It's a very dry rosé from from what the label and the wine reviewers online tell me. So very excited to, to crack this one open and enjoy it with you guys. So I think what we really wanted to start with is really go back to the basics for you and get an idea of how did you become interested in science and genetics and then eventually genetic counseling? All right. Um, so back to the basics um, in terms of where it all started. I, um, I'm going to go back to my college years. So I attended Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, um, class of 2005. Um, and I was a biology major. And during my training, I was very fortunate to um, have an opportunity to participate in a number of um, biology programs. So I was a Ronald E. McNair scholar one summer, um, and then another summer I actually participated in a summer medical educational program. Um, and then throughout my time at Rhodes, I was also involved in research. And although I found the research very stimulating and very exciting, there was something about being in the lab all by myself with my pipettes and my Petri dishes it just wasn't fun to me. I felt lonely. I probably had a bit of FOMO at the time. I just felt like I was missing out on interacting with people. So that social component was something that, that I really appreciated um, early in my training. And it was not until my senior year um, at Rhodes, fall semester, that I was taking a genetics course and a genetic counselor walked into the class. And during that session, she told us um, about her everyday activities in terms of interacting with patients, talking to patients about their family health history, talking to them about the recent news and activity around the sequencing of the human genome, um, and also talking to patients about potential tests that they could pursue based on their personal health history, family health history, um, and, and their risk. So for me, I was instantly um, intrigued. I, I always had a fascination with family history. Um, and then to layer on family health history with that, I really saw um, that being a marriage to really help, in a sense, um, enable people to pursue decisions as it pertains to their health that would help them have better health outcomes, possibly, and potentially live better lives and potentially 
um, help their family members live longer lives as well. So for me, it all um, went back to really leveling the playing field in terms of health outcomes and eliminating health disparities. Um, so around that time, there was a lot of information being disclosed around breast cancer and disparities between black and white women and how black women were more likely to be younger um, when they were diagnosed with breast cancer and more likely to be diagnosed with advanced stages um, and even triple negative breast cancer. Um, so again, just kind of connecting the dots with all of the disparaging news coming out as it pertains to breast cancer, but also knowing about this exciting news as it pertains to the sequencing of the human genome and how there was going to be potential to unlock the genome to help people better understand their, their health. Um, I, I was sold and I was on board. Um, and I also recognized early on that there were very few people who looked like me in the profession. Um, and I realized how critically important it would be for people um, like me to be in the profession in order um, to in order to demonstrate to underrepresented and underserved populations that there are trustworthy healthcare professionals and there are healthcare professionals um, with whom everyone can connect. And, and there are healthcare professionals um, who truly want to do the right thing. Um, so that was really what led me to the profession of genetic counseling. Um, ironically, so that same fall semester, I committed to Teach for America, um, and I taught middle school mm -hmm. science for two years in Atlanta, Georgia, um, at Henry McNeil Turner Middle School, um, and loved that experience. Um, and I do always say that I realized during that tenure that teaching at the middle school level was not my calling. Mm -hmm. um, but as a genetic counselor, I feel like I'm using those teaching skills every single day, whether I'm teaching um, other fellow genetic counselors, teaching other healthcare professionals, or, or even teaching patients or the community. Um, so yeah, I, I, I credit Teach for America as well for really helping to cultivate that passion for teaching, um, but just applying it in a different setting. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I'm curious, you, you mentioned that a big impetus for starting in genetic counseling was recognizing these health disparities and also recognizing, mm -hmm. you know, the disparities in, in the workforce. And I'm mm -hmm. curious when you when you were starting to look into genetic counseling and, and realizing these things, did, how did that kind of affect your your decision? Were you just kind of really empowered to kind of be a trailblazer or you know, were there times when it was a little discouraging for you? Yeah, so I can definitely say it impacted my decision to attend Howard University directly. Um, I am from a small rural area in Tennessee, um, Pulaski, Tennessee, um, where everyone knows everyone. Everyone is very supportive of one another. Um, however, growing up as a child, there were numerous times where I, I felt alone in certain settings because I may have been the only person who looked like myself. Um, and even though I was able to navigate those situations, I didn't always feel as though I was thriving in those situations. Mm -hmm. um, so for me to have the opportunity to attend an institution um, that was committed to eliminating health disparities and fostering health equity um, and attending a historically Black college and university that was partnering with the community and everything that it did, that was highly influential in that decision yeah. to intentionally attend um, Howard University. 
Um, and I had the, the opportunity to, um, to train under Barbara Harrison, who was also a trailblazer in the field um, during the time. So I did my research on Howard, did my research on Barb, and saw that she was heavily involved um, in helping to educate individuals with sickle cell. Um, so just having those, having a great mentor um, who I could instantly access, um, and then also being able to to really join a family of other genetic counselors and other healthcare professionals who look like me, who had who experienced a journey similar to myself, but yet had the same passion and desired outcomes for communities that have oftentimes been neglected, underserved, and underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was something that I knew that I needed to feel affirmed in the field, in the profession, um, so that I could ultimately be of greater service to my patients and to to my future colleagues. Wow. Yeah. And, and as we know, and all the data shows, you know, that is not just important for the people providing care, but also the, the people getting care. So, you know, I, I wish more resources were put towards programs like that so that, you know, more people could have that that story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I'm optimistic. Um, even when I think about the conversations that I've had recently, um, there are a number of us who are involved in informal mentoring. Um, and there are a couple of formal mentoring programs that have been established um, already. But I would like to really see us take that to the next level. I would like to see our National Society of Genetic Counselors really kind of take that on. Um, as a responsibility as well, because it is, it's going to require an active effort of the entire profession, not just um, a responsibility that falls on the shoulders of those of us from underrepresented professions, because mm-hmm. ultimately we're all here for our patients. We're all here to be of service. Um, and this is just one way that will help us deliver, deliver on that promise. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm curious too, along the lines of mentorship that you received at Howard, um, you know, how did you transition into a PhD program from, you know, your genetic counseling program that you initially chose Howard for? Yeah, really good question. And there is definitely a story slash testimony behind that. Um, and I'll leave by saying that I, I really should not be here today. Um, and hopefully that story, this story I'm going to share will explain that. Um, so for me, I, I enrolled full time in my genetic counseling training program at Howard. Um, we were moving rather expeditiously through our coursework, um, through our rotations and even comprehensive exams. And I was at the tail end of my clinical rotations. Um, and specifically my cancer rotations, where I just kept noticing there were so many young women who walked through the door who were diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, I even had a cousin who was diagnosed with breast cancer in her 30s at that time. Um, and although the the ladies would come in and would share information about their personal health history, they did not always qualify for genetic testing at the time. And oftentimes mm-hmm. that was because they were unable to provide sufficient family health history information to qualify for, for the resource at the time. Um, and for me, that was just so disturbing and so unsettling um, that I, I recall going to the director of my program and sharing my observations with him and just really discussing how, you know, this is contributing to the disparities that we see in terms of differences between 
um, health outcomes for white women versus black women who are diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and then I, I really talked about how I saw family health history as a, a barrier in a sense, because everyone was expected to bring a certain amount of family health history information to the table in order to qualify for genetic testing. But we know that there are some families that are disjointed where there may not be a, a, a nuclear unit. Um, and as a result, some people may not know their maternal side of the family or their paternal history. And that was hindering some of these women from accessing a potentially um, a potential resource that could have helped them better navigate their health journey. Um, so I really shared all of those observations and those thoughts with my director. And I shared with him that I really had a desire to try to address the problems that I noticed day in and day out and to try to post solutions. Um, and he was instantly supportive. Um, instantly supportive of the fact that I wanted to pursue that research degree, that PhD as a result, um, to try to answer some of those difficult questions that had gone unanswered for so long in terms of why do we see differences between various groups as it pertains to um, their participation in research? Why do we see, why do we have genetic test results that could be more clinically informative and meaningful for the majority population, but if you come from an underrepresented or minority population, you're, you're more likely to receive a variant of uncertain significance mm -hmm. or something that will not be informative and guiding your clinical care. Um, so that was really what motivated and inspired me to pursue the PhD, making those observations, really seeing myself and a number of the women who walked through the door, but also realizing one of the same tools family health history that brought me into the profession, mm -hmm. in my eyes, was one of the same tools that was, in a sense, a barrier for underrepresented groups to be able to access genetic testing in order to, to really experience um, the advancements in genetic and genomic technologies and to possibly even experience better health outcomes. And, and then I... Um, so to go back to why I, I should not be here today is I wish I had known, um, I think it was about 10 years ago, that when I walked through the door to have that discussion with my director about my desire to pursue the PhD program, I wish I had known that I was creating a pickle for myself. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, I was able to directly transition into a doctoral program um, so I did not stop and graduate with my master's, continued my training, graduated in December 2011. Um, and then after my doctoral training, I completed a postdoc at Hopkins for two years in the School of Public Health. Um, and after that, actually went um, back to Georgia for three and a half years where I was the inaugural cancer genetic counselor at Cancer Treatment Centers of America um, in Noonan, Georgia. And it was during that time that I was ready to take the boards, ready to take um, the, the genetic counseling certification examination. And uh, all of our favorite parts of being a genetic counselor, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I could not look forward to the day. Um, and unfortunately for me, you know, I mailed off my application 
I may have even emailed it at that time. Um, and within a few days, I received a notification that I was ineligible to take the certification exam. Um, and the reasoning was because I did not have a master's in the field and my PhD was not recognized. But, um, but you had the all the master's credits, right? Is that yeah, right? Yes. Absolutely. So I completed all of the master's level requirements, completed the coursework, the rotations, the comprehensive exams, and even completed a couple of additional rotations during my postdoctoral fellowship. So I was committed, committed to the profession and and definitely engaging and continuing education throughout. So, yeah, so unfortunately, you know, received that letter and I was devastated um, because I never would have imagined my desire to be of service, my desire to help underrepresented groups, um, help underserved populations, which in my mind came in the form of me getting a PhD, like asking and addressing some of those difficult questions. I never would have thought that it would have been a barrier for me to achieve a lifelong goal and to become a certified genetic counselor. Um, so luckily I was given the opportunity to, um, to appeal um, and the appeal was accepted. Um, it took a little more than a year, but individuals were kind enough to write letters on my behalf. I had to send copies of my transcript. Um, so thankfully, everyone was extremely supportive um, in that. And I was granted permission to take the exam. So prepared for the exam for a couple of months, walked through the door, sat for the exam, and unfortunately failed it. No. Um, and as you can imagine, that's just layering on more devastation because one, I was told that I wasn't really allowed to take the exam and then to actually take the exam and to not pass. Um, you know, at that point I was dealing with imposter syndrome, you know, really mm -hmm. questioning, did I deserve to be in the profession? Um, was this a mistake? You know, am I, am I not truly operating in purpose? Um, and then to add additional stress onto that, I was really approaching that five-year window um, from graduation. So I had one last attempt to take the examination um, or decide to pursue a master's level program all over again um, or just go my merry way on a different path, uh, which was not an option for me. Um, mm -hmm. So prepared, probably took about a year to take my time, study, um, utilize my network. Um, and thankfully, that second time I took the exam, I passed um, and was just so overjoyed. And instantly, all of those, all of those um, questions about if I deserve to be in the profession, if I was an imposter, they instantly went away. And I can mm -hmm. say that I was even more affirmed in that moment that I deserve to be a genetic counselor, that I deserve to exist and operate in this space and that I could truly make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've turned back since then. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I've probably ruffled a couple of feathers along the way and, and made plenty of mistakes. Um, but I've also encountered plenty of other people who are just as passionate about championing change and, and equity and, and really like changing the profile of our profession so that we can make a bigger and better difference. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that story. And, you know, it's disappointing to hear that that's how you entered this profession and professional organization, not really feeling welcome. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that this isn't necessarily unique to genetic counseling. And 
it's actually an issue for all health professional organizations where the majority of members are white. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one thing that I've been saying a lot of, and I think one thing that hit me right at the start of um, the pandemic is, you know, just reflecting on how as genetic counselors, we understand the importance of empathy and offering that to our Mm -hmm. patients. But we need to also recognize the value in offering that to each other as colleagues. Um, And that is, I think that will help us fortify our bond as a profession um, where we will be able to come together because we will better understand each other's walks, um, each other's respective journeys. And that's going to help us better connect with more patients and more populations that have oftentimes felt neglected or even underserved. And that's going to help us reach more um, more groups that are currently underrepresented in our field too, because we are going to have a united and welcoming front, and people hopefully will want to join will want to join our family. Mm-hmm. Right. And I guess my question would be, you know, after going through that whole process of you know fighting for a year to take the board exam and then having to retake it, do you still feel like obtaining your PhD was a worthwhile process? Yes, absolutely. I wouldn't change that um, for anything in the world. I I was thinking about this the other day, um, how I'm a bit of a glutton for pain, but I would, I would really say I'm a glutton for purpose. And I do mm-hmm. feel like pursuing that PhD has allowed me to operate um, in purpose. Um, I also realized that there are so few um, African-American individuals who have their PhD um, and, and so few Black women with PhDs. I'm a small percentage. I'm a unicorn in the space of genetic counseling, but I'm also a unicorn as it pertains right. to PhDs. Um, right. So I also recognize the importance of being a representative for my community. Um, and to be honest with you, I never felt like the PhD was about me. I always felt like it was how can I be of greater service, of optimal service, and how can I address some of these these plaguing questions and issues that, in a sense, we're, we're leading to, um, we're exacerbating disparities between various populations and, and in some instances, even leading to um, less quality life for some groups and even shortening the lifespan of, of various groups. So, I, yeah, I, if I could turn back the hands of time, I would make that decision over again. Um, I may get the master's first and then continue <laughs> the PhD. But I would, hands down, definitely would have still gotten a PhD. Yeah. And I guess you're you're sort of alluding to it, but I guess I'm wondering if you feel some sort of pressure to succeed in, you know, professional situations because of your experience um, as a Black woman, as someone with a PhD. Yeah, just curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, so ironically, um, I was taking a survey yesterday and they included a scale um, that really asked a similar question, actually asked a series of similar questions, um, you know, along the lines of, do I feel like maybe I'm always under the spotlight or do I feel like my mistakes may be um, exacerbated compared to someone else's who makes the same mistake? Um, and yes, there there is definitely um, an intense pressure to represent, um, an intense pressure to perform, 
Um, but I really rationalize that by saying, you know, I'm a firm believer that my life is not my own. I do believe that I was put here um, to help others. And I think that is one way um, that I'm able to really live that out in purpose um, by having that PhD and by putting myself in uncomfortable situations where I may be able to be a glimmer of hope to someone who looks like me, where they may be able to look at me and see themselves and envision themselves walking um, a similar path or hopefully even a better path and continuing to make a difference. Um, but there, there is definitely um, this intense pressure that I'm, I'm really trying to find ways to balance, to manage. Um, mm -hmm. And one tool that I've started utilizing recently is a career counselor. Um, and I connected with a career counselor because I realized there are a multitude of resources out there to help people manage their schedules, manage their time, um, and even manage relationships, whether it's mentoring relationships, professional relationships. And I wanted to learn about as many tools as I possibly could so that I can continue walking in purpose and not necessarily um, burn out. Um, because I do recognize in order to continue pouring into others, your cup has to be full. Um, so I started utilizing a career counselor. Um, the one I've connected with is phenomenal. I've learned about some great resources already, and we've only met twice. Um, but it's definitely, it, it's, it comes along with the territory. Um, and it is, a, it's a huge responsibility to carry, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. So, you know, kind of along those lines, you know, after your, your struggles with, with the PhD and, and the board, you know, you were kind of, it sounds like you kind of hit a stride in terms of your purpose. And was it around that time that you uh, were hired at 23andMe or, or were you working for a few years? Yeah, so I think I passed my boards in August of 2017, um, and I joined 23andMe in April of 2018. Um, and that was a role that I, I was really excited to pursue. Um, again, at, when I was in Atlanta, I was operating as a clinical cancer genetic counselor for three and a half years. Um, and I was the first GC at that particular hospital. So it was it was definitely a blessing to be able to work with so many different healthcare professionals to educate my patients about genetics, genetic testing, but to also educate surgeons and oncologists and neurologists and so many healthcare professionals to help them realize the value of genetics and how it could help them better manage their patients' care. Um, and again, just kind of reflecting back to that Teach for America experience, I saw myself being a teacher again. Um, so for me, the medical science liaison role at 23andMe was a perfect fit for that. Um, it allowed me to meld my clinical experience with my research experience and then that passion for teaching. Um, because ultimately, I was responsible for working very closely with healthcare professionals to help them better understand the 23andMe health product. So to understand um, the variants that were included in the product versus those variants that were not, and even the methodology that was used. Um, and I was able to also layer on some health equity um, and inclusive research experience and work on top of that as well. Um, which I did not see it as being a completely separate um, effort. I saw it as 
is helping healthcare professionals um, to really truly understand the product and to even understand the limitations of the product for certain populations relative to mm -hmm. others when someone does present in clinic with questions about it. Um, so definitely felt like that MSL role at 23andMe was still aligned um, in the purpose that I saw myself pursuing. Was, you know, when you're talking about layering on that health equity component, was that something that was kind of part of the job description when you first applied or was it something you kind of had to advocate for yourself? Yeah, no, it wasn't part of the job description at all. Um, even though I, I always share with people, you know, my full-time job was MSL, but my full-time passion was always equity, inclusion of diverse populations. Um, and again, I didn't see it as being a distractor from my everyday role. I found ways to naturally um, integrate it into my um, my daily routine. Um, and it just so happened that I was I was at a company where um, some people also were equally as passionate about health equity as well. Um, so we were able to work on a couple of efforts. Um, and some of those came in the form of me participating in various podcasts where I could reach um, diverse and underrepresented audiences, um, engaging in interviews with various sources um, that would reach the African-American audience, the Latinx audience. Um, and then also having an opportunity to channel an internal effort, um, really assessing um, the companies, um, doing a landscape assessment to really understand where we were in terms of health equity, mm -hmm. diversity, inclusion, and, and where we really wanted to go with it and how we wanted to advance that effort. And it sounds like you've kind of continued this work in your, in your current role. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> my current role, and it's funny because had you asked me two years ago, um, had I envisioned myself in this role, I would have said absolutely not. Um, and that's because this role did not exist two years ago. Yeah, um, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more about what a global health equity strategist is. Yeah, absolutely. So I am, as you mentioned, I'm a global health equity strategist and senior scientist at Genentech Roche. Um, and we have the, the phenomenal opportunity um, to really advance inclusive research. So I work with a phenomenal individual who was one of the co-partners um, in an initiative called Advancing Inclusive Research internally at Genentech. Um, and she and the other, um, the other individual who partnered the initiative did a phenomenal job in demonstrating to the company why we have to invest in including underrepresented populations, especially those that bear the burden of disease um, mm -hmm. and are disproportionately impacted by various diseases. Um, and then they also connected that to the importance of personalized health care. Um, and as a result, they were able to take that internal effort, um, that U.S. effort, and make it global. Um, and it manifested in a global health equity and population sciences team. Um, and we are a small and mighty team. There are about mm -hmm. eight of us um, on the team thus far. Um, but I have the opportunity to connect with global health equity scientists um, and really understand health disparities and health equity in various nations um, all across the world so that we can all work together to ensure the various tools, technologies, and products that are being 
availed to ensure that they're availed in a way that is equitable, equitable and accessible for all. And we're not mm -hmm. just catering to the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. um, and very similar to genetic counseling, that requires us to take a tailored approach to really understand um, the, the nations, the residents of each nation, and then tailor those approaches, tailor those strategies to meet their needs. Um, so I am I'm very excited to be able to operate in this role and to actually be part of a team committed to this as well. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I've, I've really kind of grown accustomed to at times being an N of one um, who may be championing a particular effort or being the only person in a particular setting who has an interest in a certain field or space. Um, so to come aboard and to join a team um, and to be a member of a company that has invested financial resources as well as um, as well as the manpower behind it as well. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, I couldn't have asked for anything better. Um, and it truly is affirming. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely happy to be here mm -hmm. and looking forward to continuing the work. That's awesome. Yeah, I feel like having those resources, having, you know, people around you who are also passionate about it, but also having the monetary resources does make a huge impact, unfortunately. So I think being at a company that is willing to put those resources right at the forefront of this really important topic says mm -hmm. a lot about, you know, where they're headed and, you know, where others should be kind of following. Indeed. Yep. And I also see it as an opportunity, again, to demonstrate um, to other healthcare professionals, other professionals in general, the value of having a genetic counselor on your team. Mm. You know, I, I don't think the entire world understands genetic counseling. And I think even as genetic counselors, we are learning more and more every day about what we are capable of doing and how we can continue impacting and changing the world. Um, so I, I'm hoping that I'm demonstrating to my colleagues at Genentech Roche, like you need more than just one genetic counselor um, <laughs> at this place. You need a host of genetic counselors because we, we get in and we truly make a difference and we bring a unique perspective um, especially being individuals who are trained in understanding and interpreting genetic and genomic information and being able to communicate that mm -hmm. um, in a manner that everyone can understand. So I think companies that are focused on precision medicine, personalized healthcare, and just advancing science in general would truly benefit from our presence and, and from yeah. our contributions. Yeah. yeah, I guess. And, you know, speaking of being the first and, um, you know, being a trailblazer as, uh, you know, is clearly true for you in all aspects of your career so far. Um, you know, during Black and Genetics Week, you tweeted mm -hmm. that you were recently elected as the mm -hmm. first Black woman to serve as the director at large for the yeah. National Society of Genetic Counselors um, for the 2021 board. Mm -hmm. And um, in the tweet, you alluded that there may be a story there. So I'm wondering <laughs> if it's something you'd be willing to share. So luckily, I've already shared that story with you, <laughs> ladies. So thank you for um, for indulging me. But I, I do want to share with more of my colleagues um, the arduous journey that I've encountered to get to this point, to become a licensed certified genetic counselor. And I say that with pride, um, but it should not have been that way. It shouldn't have right. been that difficult at all. Um, and I, unfortunately, 
I am not the only person with this story. Um, there are so many other people like me, some people who look like me, some people who do not look like me, who have encountered barriers in trying to accomplish their lifelong goal to become a licensed certified genetic mm -hmm. counselor. So I, I really want to see us as a professional society take a long look at some mm -hmm. of the, the practices that we have in place that need to be dismantled. Some of the biased practices that have hindered certain underrepresented groups from being able to be um, resourceful in this profession and even access the profession in general. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, I say I'm a glutton for pain and purpose, but there were definitely thoughts in my mind where I was like, you know, I don't have to endure this. I can go do something mm -hmm. else. But at the end of the day, I just knew that I would have always lived with that regret of, well, what if? And maybe I should have done this a little bit differently. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to serving as a director at large to continue working with a host of different groups we're currently connected with to really um, further diversify the profession, but also establishing some strategic partnerships with other organizations that I know can help us move the needle to make mm -hmm. our profession more inviting and to ensure that we're not only doing an excellent job of recruiting people into the profession, but we are also retaining and supporting that talent as well once they enter the profession. Um, it may not happen during my tenure as a director at large, but when I think about the programs that are in place, I, I can't think of one African-American or one director of a genetic counseling program. And I really want to see that change. And I know how critically important that will be in terms of making the profession more appealing um, to people who do identify as Black or African-American. Mm -hmm. um, and that also applies to other um, ethnic populations as well. We just have to really examine the profile of our profession and then take some steps to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And we may just be uncomfortable right at the beginning, but as we always do, we will be resilient, we will be innovative, and, and we will get some great work um, accomplished along the way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are some of the things I'm truly looking forward to um, while serving as a director at large. We're looking forward to <laughs> watching you <laughs> help make that happen. And, you know, we are with you the whole way so you know whatever the membership can do to mm -hmm. or not just NCC membership but just the whole career in general mm -hmm. um, I think it's important for us to listen to your story all the other stories that are out there it's not that hard to find them mm -hmm. and right. it, like I mean you know on Twitter and you know we've had a lot of discussions and I think that the issues are there we just need to now listen and take action mm -hmm. um, absolutely yeah. Yeah, and take action together. Um, yeah. That's where I think we will truly be powerful. Um, mm -hmm. Not not necessarily dedicating that responsibility to the people who have endured the stress or the pain, but making right. sure that we all unite and take action. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you are tuning into the podcast, this is the spot where we typically would have a sponsor, um, which we have none at the moment. So if you are interested in sponsoring our podcast, we would be very grateful. We'll make sure that those proceeds go towards um, organizations that are supporting women, femmes, and non-binary folks in science.
So we have a few rapid fire questions that okay. um, for anyone listening, they're a secret. So um, Dr. Ewing doesn't know, doesn't know what we're going to ask. Um, but... And I am nervous. I am <laughs> extremely nervous about these questions, but let's oh, see. No. <laughs> they're, they're all pretty, pretty chill. So um, I guess we could just get started. All right. So what is your favorite late night snack? Mm, really good question. I have become a fan of, I think it's called Boom Chicka Pop, um, mm, the oh, kettle yeah. popcorn. Oh, oh my gosh, gosh. Yeah. it is delicious. Yeah, so yeah. Yep. definitely my go-to late night snack. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, and what is your guilty pleasure television show? Ah, uh, so sadly, I have not watched TV in so long. Um, but occasionally I will binge watch something on Netflix, um, Mm -hmm. and just think to myself the entire time, I should really be productive right now. What is the last thing that I binge watched on Netflix? Um, I actually started watching Parks and Recreation. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not completed the series, but I have a better answer for you. So there is a show. It's called Shit's Creek and it's spelled S-C-H-I-T-T apostrophe S. And mm-hmm. I absolutely love that show. I binge watched it in um, in February and it really, it gave me life. So yeah, that was definitely a guilty pleasure because of course, every time I say the name, I'm like, let me spell it for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yep. yeah, it's a hilariously funny show. <laughs> I feel like we all need the the funny stuff, the lighthearted stuff these days. Yes, absolutely. All right. Um, so what's the most significant piece of advice you've ever received? Mm. I know this one could be a tough one. <laughs> it can be, yes. I received so much advice throughout my career. Um, and I think one thing that has just really resonated with me throughout all the years is that I should stay committed to always doing what's right, even when it's not what's popular. Um, mm-hmm. And that is something that has carried me throughout throughout my professional um, career. So even when I think about my passion for health equity, my passion for eliminating health disparities, I've always felt like that was the right thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. Although there were countless numbers of times that I walked up to a mic at a conference and I made a comment or I posed a question and people acted like they didn't hear the question or just completely like filibustered around it. Um, And, you know, it it left me thinking, you know, maybe I'm the only person who really cares about populations that are not always represented. Uh, But again, knowing that it was the right thing to do and the right thing to continue speaking up about, um, it it kept me motivated and and kept me on track. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, And I guess opposite to that, what was the worst piece of advice you've ever received? Mm. You know, I I think at times because my journey has been so circuitous and quote unquote non-traditional, um, there were definitely people who encouraged me to, you know, just abort mission and, and follow the typical path that most genetic mm. counselors follow. And mm-hmm. that was not good advice for me. Um, And, you know, I I graciously thanked the individuals for their advice, but I knew deep down that I wasn't going to follow it. Um, And I wanted to prove, you know, you may not understand my passion, you may not understand my journey, 
I definitely don't understand it, but I'm going to stay the course and then hopefully mm-hmm. things will pan out. So yeah, that's definitely been some of the worst advice that I've, yeah. I've received. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't working in genetics or, you know, working in health mm-hmm. disparity research, mm-hmm. it sounds like probably wouldn't be anything else, but if you could think of anything mm-hmm. else, what would you be doing? <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. Um, I, I would probably be involved in politics um, mm. or more heavily involved in, I'll say, advocacy work. I remember being intrigued um, with politics in high school. And I remember sharing that aspiration with my dad. And my dad made a comment um, about politicians not being trustworthy and being mm-hmm. dishonest and things like that. And that you know, influenced me. And I was like, well, I'm an honest person. I'm a good person. So I guess I can't be a politician. Um, But of course, like being so many years removed from that now and realizing the critical role that our local politicians and national politicians have and play and how in order to be a great politician, you have to have a, a centered and grounded moral and ethical compass. And unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. For all people who are currently occupying those spaces, but I, I do feel like I, I would have been called into politics because I would have wanted to prove my dad wrong and to mm-hmm. prove to him that, hey, I am one of those trustworthy mm-hmm. politicians who truly cares about my constituents and wants to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because I actually, I can draw a lot of parallels with the type of work that I'm doing yeah. um, today as a genetic counselor. Um, and it's more so an advocacy based work. Um, but I, I think the responsibilities are very similar. Well, it's yeah. Never too late. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, let's see where I am in like 15 years or so. <laughs> you got my vote. <laughs> um, and so I think that's all we have for you for the, the tough rapid fire question. But, okay. um, before we wrap up, um, is there any, cause or organization or movement or anything that you'd like to promote um, the last few minutes? Yeah, absolutely. So there are definitely three that come to mind. Um, So I will start with um, the organization that actually gifted this glass to me. Um, It's a breast cancer awareness glass. Mm -hmm. There's an organization called Painted Pink, and they Mm -hmm. are based out of Atlanta, Georgia, um, and it's a, a group that's dedicated to increasing breast health awareness um, in the young African-American female population. So it's encouraging women to do their self-breast exams and helping them to better understand um, the different types of screens and procedures one may need to undergo. Um, so that was a group that I was actively involved um, with when I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had the pleasure of speaking at their um, breast cancer awareness event in October of 2017. Um, So that's one organization. Um, Another organization that I'm truly fond of is the Satcher Health Leadership Institute. Um, And this is an institute that was founded by our 16th U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. David Satcher, um, and it has been committed to health equity Um, since its inception, so more than 30 years ago, um, heavily influenced in policy, connecting with the community um, surrounding Atlanta, Georgia community, but also underserved communities at large, but truly committed to fostering health equity and limiting health 
disparities and also ensuring that it makes it into policies so that we can dismantle some of the systemic racism and injustices that exist. Um, so we definitely highlight those two on the health front. And then I'll end with the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, you know, we're all enduring COVID right now, but we are all enduring a period of social and racial unrest as well, especially here in the states. Um, and the Equal Justice Initiative is an organization that has been committed to um, really dismantling the prison system. We know that some people are are illegally incarcerated. Um, we know that some people are targeted. Um, mm -hmm. So the Equal Justice Initiatives provides services to individuals who cannot always afford them. Um, and it's really helping to eliminate mass incarceration in general. And it's been so, it's been a beacon of hope and a beacon of change even before um, George Floyd was murdered. But it's been mm -hmm. so phenomenally um, pivotal and motivational mm -hmm. during this period as well. So that's another group that I would encourage people to learn about and to even consider getting involved or donating. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that plug, for allowing me to make that plug for those groups. Absolutely. Well, it has been such a pleasure. We have learned so much from you. Um, you know, I think when we were thinking about inviting you onto this podcast, you know, we did a lot of digging on LinkedIn and stuff on Google. Um, and actually one, one thing that we came across as we were kind of prepping was on the bottom of your LinkedIn, um, there was a recommendation that kind of embodied like a lot of the reasons why we wanted to speak to you from um, mm -hmm. Jeffrey Pollard, I think. From yes. 23 of me. Yes. Um, and he wrote, Altavis is a rocket ship, destination, a better world. And then went on to say, Altavis is on a mission to make sure that we don't leave anyone behind in healthcare, and she's achieving it with professionalism, leadership, and grace. And I think, you know, we read that and we were like, all right, we're sold. We, we have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, you know, after listening to you for this last hour, I mean, it, it just makes so much more sense why he said the things that, that he did. And um, we are just so excited to see where, where your career grows and how many people you're going to inspire and change along the way. Um, and we're just, we just feel fortunate that you were able to take an hour out of your day to talk to us. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, this was a ton of fun and I've been looking forward to it ever since you ladies connected with me. And yeah, I, I have so much love for Dr. P, Dr. Jeffrey Pollard. Um, he's been one of the best individuals I've, I've worked alongside um, during my professional career. And, and I always told Jeff, you know, not once did I ever question if I deserve to be at 23andMe. Um, and that truly meant a lot because I've existed in spaces where I didn't always feel welcome. Um, and I felt like people talked over me or people didn't want to hear what I have to say. But Dr. Pollard, he he doesn't realize it, but he helped to affirm um, my purpose and helped me to realize that I can truly make a difference. And mm -hmm. and I appreciate his kind words. And he mentioned that my destination may be a better place, but I do not plan on going to that better place alone. I plan mm -hmm. on taking so many people with me, people who are working alongside me, and and hopefully the communities, the underrepresented groups, um, will be there as well. 
So yeah. yeah. And thank you ladies yeah. so much for, for this opportunity. It was a blast for the past hour. Awesome. Yes. It was so fun. <laughs> All right. Well, we will end on a big old cheers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you'd like to nominate someone to be on our podcast, please reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram at DNA or our website, roseandna.com. And in the meantime, be well, be empowered, and cheers! cheers.